0: Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 13, The Crushing of the Knight's Templar. In view of the suspicion, infamy, loud insinuations and other things which have been brought against the order, and also the secret and clandestine reception of the brothers of this order, and the danger to faith and souls, and the many horrible things which have been done by the many of the brothers of this order, who have lapsed into the sin of wicked apostasy, the crime of detestable idolatry, and the execrable outrage of the sodomites, It is not without bitterness and sadness in my heart that we abolish the aforesaid order of the Temple, and we subject it to perpetual prohibition, strictly forbidding anyone to presume to enter the said order in the future, or to act as a Templar. Vox in Excelso by Pope Clement V, ordering the dissolution of the Knights Templar. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last time we covered the establishment and the subsequent explosive expansion of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, better known to us as the Knights Templar, a Christian military order of warrior monks that built up a vast, powerful, and most importantly, rich infrastructure throughout Europe to support their operations in the Holy Land. We left off, At the turn of the 14th century, as the Crusader presence in the Levant was finally being expelled, and the Templars found themselves without a moral cause. Without this legitimate justification for their wealth and their power, their many enemies began to circle. After the fall of the Templars' last stronghold in the Holy Land, the island of Arwad in 1302, it took only ten years for the order to be officially disbanded by Pope Clement V's decree in 1312 an excerpt of which I just read out at the beginning. Today, we will cover this dramatic collapse, particularly focusing on the accusations levelled at the order and the treatment of the Templars faced in the kingdom of their origin. France, at the turn of the century, was ruled by King Philip IV, whose reign we briefly covered towards the end of last episode. When Philip ascended to the throne in 1285, the economy of France was more or less stable, but the Iron King had expensive plans, and by the end of 1286, just a year later, he owed over 100,000 livres, the French coinage, to the Templars alone. While that sounds like a large number, what did that actually mean? Well, the revenues of France that year were just over 600,000 livres, so in a space of a year, Philip owed the Knights Templar 17% of his kingdom's revenue. That's almost a fifth of the entire Kingdom of France's yearly tax, trade tariffs, and tribute. Nevertheless, the debt was paid, and by the next year the kingdom and its king was making more money than it was spending. So what changed this situation? Well, without going into a history of the medieval economy filled with lots of numbers and monetary terms which are mostly in Latin, there was less silver in circulation, yet a growing increase in commercial activities. Put simply, there were more coins with less silver content. Debasing the coinage was only one of the ways Philip attempted to right the ship of state. In 1294, and again in 1296, the first conflicts between Philip and the Pope began when he imposed tithes on the church in France, and banned all exports of gold from the kingdom, which included the traditional donations to the papacy. Pope Boniface VIII's response was the bull, Clericus Lacos. Which forbade any clergy from providing any part of their income to any secular authority without express permission from the Vatican, and threatening excommunication upon any such secular authority which took them by force. So, to say that Philip's relationship with the papacy was stormy would be an understatement, and this would continue under Boniface's successor. Philip was not above exploiting his secular subjects either. Jewellery, drinking vessels and ornaments made from precious metals, were seized to be melted down and recast as currency, with the owners only receiving a fraction of their value in compensation. Philip also implemented unprecedented taxes and tariffs on both land and trade, and throughout all of this, the Treasury repeatedly and frequently debased the value of the French coinage to a, frankly, ridiculous degree. By 1305, only 30% of a French coin was made of precious metal, down from 94% at the beginning of Philip's reign. To add to this financial crisis, France fought lengthy wars against the Kingdom of Aragon, the Kingdom of England, and the County of Flanders, none of which brought much glory to the French nor revenue to the treasury, and of course cost a huge amount of money. The pursuit of financial stability led the king to order the expulsion of Italian merchants, particularly the Milanese, and the seizure of their assets, but this did little to repair the damage. Over time, the growing division between Philip and Pope Boniface grew. After the opening salvos of 1296, with the papal bull that threatened Philip with excommunication, Philip struck back. He convened the States General, an early, if recognisable, version of the estates General, which would play a role in French government for centuries to come. This gathering of clergy, nobles, and merchants was called upon by Philip to take his side and condemn Boniface's actions, which, of course, they loyally did. This body would be called repeatedly by Philip in order for him to receive additional taxes and subsidies, because, you know, he had money trouble. This then led to Boniface promulgating another bull, the Unum Sanctum, which was essentially, obey the Pope or you face damnation. It's a cut-and-dry argument for papal supremacy, which Philip immediately proceeded to ignore, having a Dominican friar under his control publicly dispute the bill. Boniface had the king excommunicated, and so Philip called another assembly of bishops, accusing the Pope of a multitude of charges, including infidelity, heresy, idolatry, magic, and the death of Pope Celestine V. Now, that last charge is actually debated to this day, not to get too off topic, but Celestine was Boniface's predecessor, who resigned from the papacy for a multitude of reasons. Only for Boniface to have him imprisoned out of fear he could become an antipope. Shortly after this, Celestine died in Boniface's custody, on the grounds of these accusations. Philip sent his chief minister Goulam de Nogaret with an army of two thousand mercenaries to arrest the pope, which they did, although not for long. Boniface managed to escape only to die of an illness a few months later, in October 1403. His successor, Benedict XI, did not last long in office. He died to an unknown illness that was rumoured to be connected to him excommunicating Nogaret for his role in, you know, kidnapping and imprisoning the Holy Father. What is important for us is that his successor, Clement V, was a French cardinal who moved the seat of the papacy to Avignon. We covered all of this last episode, but this should help illustrate quite how far Philip would go to see his ambitions fulfilled. Each of these actions turned Philip's subjects against him. Even clergy that had supported their king in the spat with Rome would have been horrified that he had ordered the heir to St. Peter kidnapped, and in June of 1306, Philip faced a riot in Paris. His financial policies had alienated every part of his kingdom. The poor townsfolk, could not afford to buy food with their worthless coins. The richer citizens had essentially been robbed by royal agents, and the clergy were hardly unwavering supporters of the regime. Facing down a mob of angry Parisians, Philip did the only sensible thing. He legged it. In a twist of historical irony, he sought and found refuge in the Paris Temple, the enormous citadel on the banks of the Seine that we saw last episode. He hid here, in the headquarters of one of the most powerful and wealthy organisations in Christendom for three days. If he had not entertained ideas before, witnessing the power and wealth of the Templars must surely have played a role in his later decision. As it was, when he finally left the safety of the Order, he had a new idea. A new line of coins with a much larger content of silver. A complete refresh of the currency was the only thing that could repair the confidence of the people, but where, oh where, could he find enough precious metal for the task? Nope, not the Templars, not yet. Sadly, and not for the first time, and not for the last, the Jewish community in France would pay the price. In one day, Jews throughout France were arrested, their families expelled from the realm with a tiny amount to their name, and their goods and properties seized outright and auctioned off for the state's use. The Jews were, of course, famous for their money-lending, Ursary was a sin in the eyes of the church, and yet people needed credit. So the necessary evil, so to speak, came down to those who were not of the faith, and yet had the money to lend. With the expulsion of the Jews, the state took on these debts, and royal agents began to shake down all of those who had previously had pleasant, professional dealings with their creditors. Yet it was not enough. Ignacio de la Torre, who has provided a lot of this fascinating insight into Philip's frantic attempts to shore up his economy, suggests that it was after this that the Templars' fate was sealed. There was no other source of silver in France that could provide enough capital to save the currency. Without a sudden injection of wealth, and relying on the normal revenues of the kingdom, it would have taken, as Torres estimates, 222 years to gather enough silver to fix the currency. Perhaps it was during his forced visit to the Paris Temple that Philip fully understood the gold mine he had on his doorstep, but even then the megalomaniacal Philip would never have been wholly satisfied with the state within a state that was the Knights Templar. Never mind that the Templars had financed many of Philip's adventures in Aragon and Flanders, at a very generous rate I might add, Never mind that, as a reward for their loyal service, he had proclaimed to his kingdom and Christendom that the Templars were a fine example of charity, piety, and valour. The Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, was godfather to Philip's son. This was all unfortunate, and as we shall see, irrelevant to the Templars' fate. The official reason given for the destruction of the Templar order were accusations of heresy and sins of ill repute. These accusations had surrounded the order for decades. As discussed last time, the Templars may have been a religious order dedicated to the service of Jesus Christ, but they were also highly involved in secular society. Even had they been on their best behaviour, which they certainly weren't, the Templars would naturally butt heads with the merchants they undercut, the debtors they demanded payment from, and the tenants of the lands they had received. This isn't even counting that their mere existence as an autonomous standing army with vast protections and wealth would naturally draw suspicion of ulterior motives. It's understandable that malicious rumours would spread about this powerful organisation despite its pious origins. The accusations that most recently involved the Templars were those of Esquieu de Fleurin, a Frenchman whose name I have probably butchered, who claimed to have heard the confession of an ex-Templar sentenced to death. They were both imprisoned and told each other of their crimes. This former knight claimed to have committed terrible sins during his time in the Order, and de Fleuren was so horrified that he managed to convince the prison wardens to let him out so he could tell the king. Now, the king in question appears to have been King James II of Aragon who de Florin managed to gain an audience with in either 1304 or 1305. However, James was unwilling to accept the accusations without proof, as the Templars in Aragon were highly reliant on and devoted towards the monarch, and James had little incentive to act against them. So de Florin headed north to his native France. While there is no proof of any such meeting, it is highly likely that de Florin met with Nagoret, who brought him before Philip. The king was, at this point, yet to come to a decision on the Templars, and subsequently passed on the accusations to the Pope, as the Templars were under his jurisdiction, as of the Omnedatum Optimum Bill of 1139. As relations between the King and the Order began to sour, however, de Floyren's accusations became much more useful to Philip. Norman Cohen argues that, as zealous and megalomaniacal as the King was, it is possible that he believed the rumours, Apparently, royal spies were sent out to each French temple to discover the truth of the matter, although none would ever be called to testify, nor would their reports enter the legal records. It's safe to assume that they found no evidence. As a quick correction on last week's episode, I said that the Omnidatum Optimum Bull was promulgated under Alexander III in 1163. This was based on the information found in Europe's Inner Demons, a book by Norman Cohen, which is brilliant but I have since found this information contradicted almost everywhere else. It doesn't overly influence the topic, but a mistake is a mistake, and I should set the record straight. Grandmaster la Mole had met with the king in June of 1407 to discuss these accusations, and had left reassured that inquiries would be made fairly. He then met with Pope Clement to arrange for this inquiry to be organised quickly, so that the rumours, which Molay assured the Pope were patently false, could be expunged from the order's name. Despite his conversation with Molay in June, by September, Philip was on his path to move against the Knights Templar. Not only did they hold vast wealth in their French chapter houses that would alleviate the French economy, as well as Philip already owing the order a significant amount, but their autonomy was a direct obstacle to his designs for kingly authority. By striking at the Templars in this way, he removed both their requirement to pay them back, as well as seizing their wealth in its entirety. In September 1307, arrest orders were dispatched from Philip IV's court to his bailiffs across the kingdom. The royal command is brutal in its dehumanising language, going to great pains to make it clear to the officers who would oversee the arrests quite how evil their targets were. One excerpt reads, These people are like beasts of burden, which have no understanding. Indeed, they surpass the unreasoning beasts in their astounding bestiality. They expose themselves to all the supremely abominable crimes, which even the sensuality of unreasoning beasts abhors and avoids. Not only by their acts and their detestable deeds, but even by their hasty words they defile the earth with their filth, they undo the benefits of the Jew. they corrupt the purity of the air and bring about confusion of our faith. Philip is certainly not pulling his punches here. The royal agents were to be in no doubt as to the just nature of their orders, and it appears to have worked. The arrests were ordered to take place one month hence at the same time on Friday the 13th of October, and judging by the fact that so few members of the order managed to escape arrest, it seems that there were no leaks of the planned roundup over the following month. This also implies that dislike of the Templar Order was already widespread among the civil service, or simply that agents with known Templar sympathies were deliberately kept in the dark. As an aside, this is sometimes held as the reason that Friday the 13th is considered unlucky, although it is far from the only possible origin. As with the expulsion of the Jews a year previously, the efficiency and loyalty of the French bureaucracy shows through. This is a medieval state, with all of the communication and administrative problems that that entails. And yet, Philip's civil service is repeatedly shown to be incredibly competent. To enact mass arrests across an entire kingdom in a single pre-planned day is no easy feat. At dawn on the chosen day, Across the length and breadth of the kingdom, commanderies and temples were stormed by armed agents of the king. The fortress monasteries were assaulted by hundreds of armed and armoured agents, heavily outnumbering the surprised Templars and taking them into custody. Undoubtedly, there were casualties. The temples were more akin to citadels and garrisoned with zealous professional soldiers, who would not take kindly to such an invasion. Yet, these are not mentioned in the sources I've found, which indicates that the vast majority of Templars went quietly. In many cases, the Templars were not barricaded within their citadels and were in no position to defend themselves. When Grand Master Jacques de Molay was arrested in Paris, he had been attending the funeral of the sister-in-law of King Philip the previous day. After all, he was treated as part of the family. Both himself and sixty of his brothers who were in attendance were seized. The immediate fates of the French Templars were grim. In the words of Cohen, Seized suddenly, without any warning, kept in complete ignorance concerning their fellows in other areas, and often in solitary confinement, they were told that countless Templars had already confessed to all the charges. If they confessed in their turn, they would be spared, set at liberty, and reconciled to the Church. If not, they would be executed. If this failed to produce the desired effect, torture was applied, and the tortures could include having one's feet roasted until the bones fell from their sockets. One Templar actually exhibited a handful of his bones at a later inquiry. In such circumstances, it is hardly surprising that in the first interrogations in Paris, only four out of 138, refused to confess to any offences. The initial raft of charges levelled at the order were as horrific as they were unlikely. De testimony had become the basis of the arrest warrants, and so became the first charges levelled at the arrested Templars. So it's probably a good idea to cover what those accusations actually were. The claims listed in the arrest warrants are a decent place to start. They state that Upon initiation into the Templar order, they take part in a secret ceremony, whereupon they are ordered to spit on a crucifix three times and deny Christ. After which, they strip naked, and the commander, who is leading the initiation, then kisses the initiate three times, on the base of the spine, on the navel, and on the mouth. At this point, the initiate is told that sodomy is both accepted and encouraged in the order, and that they are not to decline an offer of intercourse from another knight. While they do so, they have to keep wearing their belt, which was said to have been wrapped around the head of an idol, which is kept away from ordinary members and worshipped by the leaders of the temple. Lastly, the Templar chaplains conducted the Mass in an unorthodox way. To put it simply, these charges are nonsense. True, the initiations were intended to be held away from prying eyes, but this was due to the religious reverence of the event. This was when a man devoted himself to Christ, to swear off material gain and to offer his life in battle in the Holy Land. All of this is recorded in a detailed description of the ceremony and it does appear to be considered legitimate by modern historians. It makes sense logically too. These initiates did not just spring out of holes in the ground. They came from a deeply Christian society, regardless of their upbringing, and the vast majority came to serve out of piety. That none of the tens of thousands of initiates protested, this flagrantly blasphemous ritual strikes at the heart of the charges. Yes, it is possible that dissidents were threatened with death, or were simply outright murdered. But as we discussed last episode, the knights largely came from powerful noble families. They would surely care that their relatives had abruptly died upon entering the temple, and would have surely investigated. At the very least, recruitment would have died down after such unexplained deaths. When considered individually, each charge falls down from even the most basic scrutiny. The charges accepted that recruits took vows of chastity, swearing off of sex for the duration of their service, only for the commanders to immediately invite them to take part in sodomy. Okay. The zealous faith of Templars can be seen in the behaviour of those imprisoned in Syria and Egypt. Renouncing their religion would see their release, or at least their better treatment, and yet startlingly few did. But we're to believe that during their initiation, they took part in a ritual that did just that? The kisses from the commanders are a case of confusion among the prosecutors, tortured Templars admitted several variations of the kisses, ranging from the commanders during the kissing, the initiates kissing the commanders, to where on the body the kisses were made. It was in the details of the idol that the most obvious differences appear in the initial confessions of the Templars. Some described it as having one face, some with three, while others as having four feet. Yet more considered it a polished human skull, encrusted with precious jewels, and that it was the remains of a deceased Grand Master, sometimes being the skull of the founder of the Templars, Hugh de Payan. Others gave it the name Baphomet, or Satan, or even Muhammad, while others even went as far to say it had horns. Naturally, some confessions described it as being coated in the roasted fat of infant children. Where it came from, no one agreed, only that it was from the Devil. This head was often accompanied by a black cat, which would appear in a cloud next to the idol during rituals. The cat was similarly revered by the Templars, who removed their hats, they bowed, and sometimes they kissed it beneath the tail. During these rituals, the Templars would often be joined by a horde of dancing naked women, demons in a more pleasing form with whom the knights would make love At first, confessions involving the idol were fairly scarce, which makes sense, as only the highest ranks of the order were meant to have known about it. Yet as time went on, and the tortures continued, these limitations were dropped, and suddenly everyone, everywhere, from the highest master to the lowest sergeant, knew and adored the strange head. As the torture went on, the confessions grew more elaborate. Deceased Templar knights were cremated, And their ashes put into a potion to be drunk by new recruits in order to corrupt them. Not only were initiates called to renounce Christ, but to declare him a criminal who was justly executed for his crimes, and to similarly decry the Virgin Mary and all the Catholic saints. Spitting three times on the crucifix was, after so many interrogations, far too vanilla for the royal agents, and so now the cross was dragged around the room, trampled underfoot, urinated, and defecated on. This no longer took place solely upon the recruits' entry into the temple, oh no no, but repeated on holy days just to be extra evil. The Templars no longer held any belief in the power of God, only in that of the devil. These confessions are highly illustrative of the image the royal agents sought to create. The vast majority of these details match those confessed by Cathar and Waldensian heretics of the previous centuries, so it's no surprise to see them repeated here. Despite his seemingly close relationship with the king grand master de molay was not spared this treatment although the sources disagree as to whether he was tortured at the university of paris or if the fear of torture was enough to receive his cooperation his position differed however when the royal agents demanded that he author a letter to all of christendom urging his fellow templars to admit to their sins with these confessions in hand Philip demanded that the Pope allow him to prosecute the Templar order as a heretical sect. Now, the French king was on shaky ground, legally. By ecclesiastical law, the right to prosecute heretics was that of the Church, not the state, although the state was expected to assist and conduct the punishments. Not only that, but the Templars were explicitly protected from any authority but the Holy See, as per the Omnum Datum Optimum Bull. Philip was infringing on the rights of the Pope twice over. Were this ten years earlier, this would have been a much more even fight. Boniface was no shrinking violet, and he had had the benefit of being safely ensconced in Rome. Clement V was in a much weaker position. Clement was a Frenchman, and his court was in French territory, surrounded by soldiers loyal to the king. He owed his very election as Pope to Philip, and his actions were highly reliant on the French king's favour. Even Boniface would struggle to hold his ground in these conditions. It certainly didn't help that Clement appears to have suffered from an illness which confined him to bed for months at a time. As Cohen says, the arrest of the Templars opened a struggle between King and Pope, but it was an unequal struggle, and in the end, Philip secured most of his aims. Philip had the Holy Father issue a call for the arrest of all Templars wherever they were in Christendom. The papal edict, the Pastoralis Preeminentiae, was enforced to varying degrees in different jurisdictions, which we will examine next episode. Despite giving papal approval to Philip's actions by ordering similar arrests elsewhere, Clement was sceptical of the confessions, knowing full well that Philip had an axe to grind and they were extracted under torture by his agents. Philip was bound by inquisitorial procedure, which was much stricter, and far more sober than that used in civil law. Yet such was Philip's influence that he could work around these restrictions. Royal agents would begin the torture and receive the confessions, and only then allow the inquisitors into the chamber for them to witness these pre-arranged admissions of guilt. The lead inquisitor of France, Goulam Mimbeur, the man who told his subordinates how to work with the royal agents, was King Philip's confessor. Clement was not completely outmanoeuvred, however. After de Molay's confession and letter, the Pope dispatched two cardinals to meet with the Grand Master and get his side of the story, whereupon the Grand Master retracted his confession. The struggle between Philip and Clement reopened over how the Knights Templar would be prosecuted. Clement gave instructions to all French tribunals that spelled out the number of clergy and their rank that would be part of the proceedings, as well as providing a standardised list of questions for each of the accused. When and where were they inducted into the order? Who else was there? How the ceremony was conducted, and whether any unusual or immoral events had taken place. The use of torture was forbidden, except for those who outright refused to testify, instead of all those that did not freely admit to the charges. In 1308, Clement made his first and, only real attempt to resist Philip's domination, and he ordered the suspension of all inquisitorial trials, and reserved for himself the right to come to a decision on the fate of the Templars. Philip was, shall we say, less than amused, but like a carpenter building stairs, he was already thinking three steps ahead. He intensified his propaganda against both the Templars and his disobedient Pope. In May of 1308, the States General met to consider the problem summoned to Tours by Nogaret. The wording of the summons had already made the decision. Oh grief, the abominable error of the Templars, so bitter, so lamentable, is not hidden from you. So much for a fair trial. The summons went on to list the charges as proven fact, rather than accusations, and so it's no wonder that when the assembly convened, they voted unanimously for the execution of the Templar Knights. Next, it was on to the Pope, and Philip organised a gathering of clergy at Poitiers, where the king and several high officials took turns to speak. While decrying the Templars and their heresy, which had gladly been discovered by those loyal to the Church, the speeches were also intended to intimidate Clement. How could any true Catholic question the guilt of the Templars? It didn't matter how the truth had come to light, whether through torture or otherwise, All that mattered was that it had. To express doubt was heresy. Yes, Philip was suggesting that if Pope Clement resisted the king's right to imprison, torture, and execute whichever Templars he wished, the Pope himself would be open to charges of heresy. It would certainly not be the first time that Philip had openly attacked the Holy Father, and now Clement was surrounded by French soldiers. And yet he held his ground at least until Philip arranged for some carefully chosen Templars to be brought before the Pope to repeat their confessions. What followed was essentially a papal capitulation. Clement managed to wring a few minor concessions out of the King, namely that Templars would be prosecuted and judged individually rather than as a group, and papal commissions would attend to all trials both in France and elsewhere. In return, Philip had torture officially sanctioned, and his bishops were free to conduct their own prosecutions. These rules were applied throughout Christendom, and as we shall see, they were followed differently outside of Philip's control. The trials continued into 1309 and 1310, and the original charges had grown to a total of 127. In the vast majority of French cases, torture was used to extract confessions from the accused in the presence of royal agents, but these confessions would later be recanted once papal commissioners arrived. Despite Philip having a strong influence over who would be part of the commission, when the word went out that commissioners would hear any Templars that would volunteer to give evidence, more than 500 came forward at once. Despite being imprisoned for years at this point, and facing torture repeatedly, these men sprung at the chance to defend themselves and the temple they devoted their lives to. In Paris, in 1307, 134 Templars repeated their confessions and denounced the order. In 1310, just three years later, 81 of those same men came forward to defend it. This would be the same for Grand Master de Molay, who had originally started the struggle between Clement and Philip with his own retraction. He had since confessed again to his crimes, but yet when Papal Commissioners arrived, he disputed the charges once more. Hundreds of Templars across France were regaining their fortitude with the arrival of a neutral party, one that would listen to their pleas of innocence, and with the authority to set them free and restore the Knights Templar. Well, if you think this has a happy ending, then you haven't been paying attention. Under inquisitorial procedure, any heretic that recanted their confession was condemned to be burnt, and these trials were under inquisitorial procedure. The papal commissioners may have believed that their authority was enough to delay any such actions until they had completed their investigations, but this was just an assumption, one that the Iron King was having none of. Philip used the previous confessions to have an archbishop loyal to the throne act. Fifty-four men, the majority of the Templars that had been arrested alongside Molay in 1307, were dragged out of the cells they had languished in for three years led to an area just outside of Paris, and given a final chance to go back on their recantation while standing before dozens of pyres. If they did so, they would be returned to their cells. If they stood firm, they would die. All 54 men, proud members of the Knights Templar, stood firm to their recantation and were tied to the stakes. Even as the flames rose up and began to consume them, Witnesses say that between their screams of agony, they continued to declare their innocence and that of the temple. These 54 men were soon followed by others, and eventually some 120 Templars were burnt alive in Paris over these short days. Only two chose life, recanting their recantations and being returned to the cells to the sound of their brothers dying. It appears the threat had been made very clear to the remaining Templars. Play along, confess your sins, and accept the lesser punishment, or die screaming. Most now learned this lesson, and the recantation stopped. Clement was also the recipient of this education, and he had resigned himself to the fact that the Templars were beyond his protection. He called an ecumenical council at Vienne, near Avignon, over the end of 1310 and the beginning of 1311, to receive their backing in dissolving the Knights Templar. This backfired, however, with the International Assembly refusing to disband the Templars, especially once nine knights stepped in and declared that they wished to defend the honour of their order. Philip stepped in, and demanded that Clement suppress the order on his own authority. And so, on the 22nd of March, 1312, Clement promulgated the Vox in Excelso, an excerpt of which was at the beginning of this episode, which ordered the dissolution of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, declaring that their assets were now the property of the Knights Hospitaller, one of their brother orders. Of course, Philip ignored this order to transfer the wealth and kept hold of the Templar estates for the benefit of France. The Templar treasure of precious metals made its way to the mints, successfully stabilising the French economy, but through the use of blood money. After the official dissolution, events petered out in France for the next year. Templars were tried and sentenced to imprisonment or other penance, their will to resist broken by the fiery deaths of dozens of their brothers, an example of what fate awaited them should they fight their convictions. Clement ordered that surviving Templars be split up and spirited away to various monasteries, to live out their days in the service of the god they had admitted to betraying. For the highest French officers of the order, this was simply not possible. They were too dangerous, both because of their personal prestige as well as their powerful connections. They were to be imprisoned for the rest of their lives. However, this was not to be the case. Grand Master Jacques de Molay, who was in his 70s at this point, along with three other high ranking Templars, threw a spanner in the works at their final hearing in 1314. I'll make use of the 19th century historian. Henry Charles Lee's accounts of the events. The cardinals dallied with their duty until the 18th of March 1314, when, on a scaffold in front of Notre Dame, Jacques de Molay, Templar Grandmaster, Geoffrey de Charnay, Master of Normandy, Hugh de Parade, Visitor of France, and Godfrey de Gonville, Master of Aquitaine, were brought forth from the jail in which, for nearly seven years they had lain, to receive the sentence agreed upon by the Cardinals in conjunction with the Archbishop of Seine and some other prelates they had called in. Considering the offences which the culprits had confessed and confirmed, the penance imposed was in accordance with the rule, that of perpetual imprisonment. The affair was supposed to be concluded when, to the dismay of the prelates and wonderment of the assembled crowd, Jacques de Molay and Geoffrey de Charnay arose. They had been guilty, they said, not of the crimes imputed to them, but of basely betraying their order to save their own lives. It was pure and holy. The charges were fictitious and the confessions false. Hastily, the Cardinals delivered them to the Privat of Paris and retired to deliberate on this unexpected contingency, but they were saved all the trouble. When the news was carried to Philip, he was furious. A short consultation with his council only was required. The canons pronounced that a relapsed heretic was to be burned without a hearing. The facts were notorious and no formal judgment by the papal commission need be waited for. That same day, by sunset, a pile was erected on a small island in the Seine, the Ile de Jouffe, near the palace garden. There, de Molay, de Charnay, de Gonville and de Parade were slowly burned to death, refusing all offers of pardon for attraction, and bearing their torment with a composure which won for them the reputation of martyrs among the people, who reverently collected their ashes as relics. With the death of the Templar leadership, we come to the end of the trial of the Templars in France. Philip had won, He had destroyed a military order to which he owed a substantial amount, and used their funds to shore up his faltering economy, and asserted his authority and that of the French crown over the Pope himself. Still, he would not have much time to feel smug. In events that some saw as a sign of divine displeasure, Clement died within a month of the burning of Desmalais, which appears to have been natural causes. While on a hunting trip in November of 1314, Philip Capet, King of France, the Fair, the Iron King, suffered what appears to have been a stroke, wasted away for a few more weeks, before finally succumbing on the 29th of November, at the age of just 46. He had ruled France for 29 years, Nevers for 19, had overseen the collapse of his kingdom's economy, expelled and robbed Italian merchants and Jewish creditors, laid the foundations of the Hundred Years' War, Crippled the authority of the papacy beyond repair and had destroyed a powerful religious order for material and political gain Whether or not it was divine retribution Neither the mastermind nor the unwilling accomplice in the destruction of the Knights Templar would live beyond the year Next week we will see how events unfolded in the other countries where the Templars had a sizable presence from England and the kingdoms of Iberia where rulers were highly sympathetic to the knights in their realms, to the island of Cyprus, the last crusader state, where the Templars fell afoul of local politics and faced a much harder time because of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. America.